You didn't sound enthusiastic about that, thanks be to God. I really, that's, that's, that's two weeks in a row now. So <clears throat> we might be choosing some interesting passages of Scripture for this series from the, from the body of Scripture we call the Old Testament or Jewish Scripture. This one is from the book of Jonah. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, just a quick little tidbit of information. I want you all, if you would please this week, to be in prayer uh, for me on Tuesday morning. I'm the chapel speaker at Seattle Pacific Tuesday morning. So, and I have to preach on Lamentations 4. Pray hard, my friends, pray hard, pray hard. Yeah, I wanted to let you know, you know, this uh, quarter I'm teaching a class at Seattle Pacific as well on the Christian faith. It's the very first class that many of the students take exposing them to Christianity. One of the things you may not know about Seattle Pacific is that many of the students there come from non-Christian backgrounds. And so as I look out on my class, only about 40% of them are in some kind of um, what I would consider to be you know, deep Christian commitment. And the other 60% either are marginal Christians, nominal Christians. Some of them are from other faith traditions like Islam. Uh, some folks, of course, who are Christian but Roman Catholic and haven't worshipped in a long time. So my class is just a really interesting and wonderful, diverse group of 18 and 19-year-olds. So pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them, all right? It's really important for us to do. So um, one of the things I've learned in 28 years of marriage, and my wife's not here this morning at this particular service. She'll be here later so I can get away with it. Not really. I've learned in 28 years of marriage is my wife doesn't like surprises. And I love surprises. I love to surprise people. I don't like being surprised, but I like surprise parties. I like planning to do those things unexpected and, uh, you know, kind of these interruptions that come into people's lives that hopefully fill them with joy. My wife hates them. So when my wife had her 30th birthday party, which, as you know, is probably like last week or something, um, we uh, planned a surprise party for her and it happened to be about a week before our wedding. And so we invited all of her friends and everybody to come to the surprise party that were close by. And she didn't know it was a surprise party, duh. And so uh, she ended up arriving at her surprise birthday party a little over an hour late because she had no idea that people were there waiting, of course, because it's a surprise. That shouldn't surprise me. And so what I've learned is that one of the best ways to express the kind of love that I have for my wife is not to surprise her, but to involve her in the decision-making, to involve her in the conversation, involve her in the planning. Those are signs of love to her more than me planning a surprise for her. We have to learn in our lives and in our community how people want and need to be loved. And so love is a generous act. It's not a selfish one, it's a generous one in which we think about how we are acting and living for the sake of other people. And to be honest, in the day and age in which we live, love is often understood, as we've talked before, as something that is often selfish. It has the uh, individual at the center in the hopes of what they might gain or achieve or have in love rather than what they give and offer and even sacrifice for other individuals in love. And so as we 
move closer to the end of this series called Value the Difference, we're exploring some of these virtues of the Christian life, these values of our lives that are designed to be lived out differently than how they're lived out in the world. We've talked about a number of topics from life to justice to mercy to grace to all these different ways in which God calls us to live a life that is different than what is lived in the world. And so today I want to talk about love and how we're called to love in a sacrificial way and what that might look like for any of us. And we're going to use the story of Jonah, as popular as it is. Now, Jonah's always puzzled me because, you know, I didn't grow up in church as a child, so I don't remember going to Sunday school and learning stories as a child from the Bible. And so as an adult, and that's the only context in which I've learned these stories from the Bible, I'm perplexed at the kind of stories that we teach our children. Jonah being one of them. Jonah is a complex, difficult, and very confrontational story that is designed to provoke us into action. I know it's fanciful that the guy gets swallowed by a fish and all that makes for a good children's story, yes. But the meaning of the story, its purpose in Scripture and its call to us today and how God speaks to us in it, oh, that's serious stuff. And so I want us to just sit with Jonah for a while and compare, just for a moment, Jonah and God in this story. And it all kind of comes to a head in Jonah chapter 4. When we talk about love, let's talk first about love as a generous act. Remember, we're talking about keeping that other person as the center. So let's talk about the power of generous action. See, Jonah perceives this city that he's being sent to, depending on what scholar you ask, it's pronounced Nineveh or Nineveh, you pick. He doesn't want to go there. He is really reluctant to go to the city. God has told him, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and when you get there, I want you to preach to them a message of repentance so that they might turn from their evil ways. And then God says, if they do so, I won't destroy the city. So that's what's on the line, God destroying the city. There's only one problem with this, and that Jonah lived in the 8th century, which is in the 700s, and Nineveh is one of the chief cities of the Assyrian Empire. It's the very empire that would destroy the 10 northern tribes in the nation called Israel in 722. So Jonah's being told, I want you to go to one of the chief cities of what will be our enemy, and I want you to preach a message of repentance to them. So Jonah, of course, as you know from the story, doesn't want to go. So he runs away after God calls him. He goes down to a seaport village called Joppa. He hops on a ship that's going to a place called Tarshish, and he heads out into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. There's a big storm that happens as he's in the middle of the sea. The sailors want to know why there's a big storm. Jonah confesses it's him. They throw him overboard. And it's at that point, he gets swallowed by the whale. I mean fish. I mean whale. I mean fish. As if anyone then knew the difference between a marine mammal and a fish. Let's just leave that there, all right? He gets swallowed and he's in the belly of a whatever for three days. Three days later, he gets spit back up on the very beach he left from. And then he reluctantly goes to Nineveh and he proclaims this message to them. In some sense, 
Jonah represents all the work that is done to sometimes to protect, to guard, to keep. He doesn't want the Ninevites to hear this message. So for Jonah, power, when we talk about the power of Jonah's action, the power here is his own fellowship and relationship with God, and he doesn't want it shared. Not to what will be the enemy of the Israelites. That's also not part of the key of the story here. He's actually a little concerned that if he goes to Nineveh and preaches a message of repentance, they could actually repent. And for him, as a a man of Israel, this would be a great shame to him. So if he goes to Nineveh and he preaches this message and they repent, the Ninevites will have done something that the Israelites did not do when prophet after prophet after prophet was sent to them. That's what's at stake in the story. It's not only does Jonah not want to preach this redemptive message to the Ninevites for their own sake, but he doesn't want their repentance to make his own countrymen embarrassed. That when prophets were sent to them, they killed them. So what happens if he goes to Nineveh and he's a success? This is a difficult situation he's in. He doesn't seek the well-being of the Ninevites. He hopes they never hear this message of repentance, and that's why he runs. He eventually gets to Nineveh, he goes into the city, he preaches this message of repentance, and he's successful. They repent. And here's how chapter 4 opens. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 say this. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. That verse right there in verse 1, that's the strongest way you can write in the Hebrew language, he was upset. You can't write it in a stronger way, a more emphatic way. That says in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That's the, his way of saying, see, God, I told you so. Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish, since I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, the one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And then God says to him, do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah is a perfect example of the times in our lives where we require another individual or another group to change in order to qualify our expectations of them. It's like having an entry exam. I'll have a relationship with you, but only if you do these eight things. Love is a generous act, and Jonah cannot seem to wrap his head around what this is going to mean for him. You see, it's a different kind of greed. It's a greed marked by qualification, demands, restrictions. Prejudice, discrimination, and judgmentalism are all marks of Jonah. All the ways in which he excludes rather than includes. God, on the other hand, sees the the power of this sacrificial action differently because God sees the value of each and every person. God sees the people in Nineveh in deep need. Their evil is consuming them in a way that will lead ultimately to their destruction. So someone needs to reach them. Someone needs to love them. Someone needs to connect with them. So there are options. Should we send the Israelites to go invade Nineveh? No, that's not the answer. That sounds rather imperial. 
So instead, God chooses to send one lone prophet. It's an act of generosity. You see, God's action toward the Ninevites in a generous way is one that welcomes a response. See, Jonah hopes the Ninevites never repent. He'd love to see nothing more than their destruction. But God, on the other hand, hopes that they repent, hopes that they turn from their ways, hopes that they take action to move in a new kind of direction. So there's some generous actions that we can take, that we can take in our own lives. There are individuals where we can take these kinds of actions. Coming up here in the uh, third week of March, uh, we're going to reopen something we used to do for years here at our church, and then we're going to reopen the Seattle Pacific Study Cafe. Sunday through Thursday of finals week. And we're doing that in partnership with Coastline Church, which is our free Methodist church that's down in Belltown. They meet in a coffee shop. You may have been there at Cedars and Spokes. It's not very far from Pike Place Market. Together, working with, um, with Coastline, we're going to host Seattle Pacific students from 4 to 11 o'clock for five days every afternoon so they can come and study and relax. On a couple of the days, we're going to make dinner for them. On a few of the days, Coastline's going to make dinner for them. They run a coffee shop, so they're going to serve them a lot of coffee while they're here. That's sacrificial, generous action. We hope they come, but we expect nothing in return. We don't expect those students to pay for it. We don't expect those students to start showing up on Sunday morning. We just want to love them, that they know they're loved. They know they have a safe place. They know that this building across the street that they think is a university building is actually a church filled with people who care. There are so many other ways in which we can do this kind of generous action. On the 18th of February, we have our parents' night out with our North Queen Anne child care, in which we're going to do some child care for the evening in partnership with the North Queen Anne staff so parents can go out, moms and dads, and have a date. Do like marriage stuff where they can stay connected and stay renewed in their love for one another. So, a couple questions for us to wonder about. Where have you seen the power of generous love at work this last week? And what person or group might need to know of God's love through you this week? Now, one of these days, we'll get around to the other half of this sermon, which we are not going to deal with this morning, which is, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't practice general, generous love in a way that enables other people in their destructive behaviors. We'll preach that sermon later. It's an important one. But right now, let's just focus on this. Now, whenever we want to take generous action, of course, there's going to be risk. Now, for Jonah, the risk of the generous action is what he tells God in the beginning of Jonah chapter 4. God, I told you so. The Ninevites were going to repent. You should have known better. And so what happens is after Jonah preaches his message of repentance, the Ninevites repent and God doesn't destroy the city after all. 
So Jonah is completely enraged because it's destabilized all of the us-them scenarios in his mind. Us, the Israelites, them, the Ninvites, and we don't want anything to do with each other. He likes the boundaries, he likes the rules, he likes the dotted lines, he likes the solid lines. He likes it the way it is. If he were to go to the Ninvites, it destabilizes everything he thinks about us versus them. And here's the problem we have to face. As beings here in the 21st century, there is no them. There's only us. There is no them. God sees all of us as objects of deep affection and grace and love. There are no walls. There are no barriers. There's just the experience of God's love and trusting that God's love will do all the change that's needed in any person's life, including our own. You see, most importantly for Jonah, his assumptions about other people have been proven wrong. And he's quietly surprised but won't admit that the Ninevites have responded to this proclamation that he's made to them. So Jonah's risk of going is they might say yes, and they did. God's risk of sending Jonah is they might say no. They don't, but they might. You know, as Methodists, that's what the sign says outside, right? Methodist. As Methodists, we believe deeply in the capacity of human will and choice, that God offers grace and invitation to everyone. We believe, unlike our Calvinist brothers and sisters, that God's atonement is for all people, not just some. And so we proclaim a message of God's love for everyone. This is God's call. God's invitation is that everyone is welcome. But the problem there is this, is that we have to constantly keep putting the doormat out. And some people don't want to come in. Some people want to say no. Every week I go teach my class at Seattle Pacific, I have some students in that class that are totally excited about saying yes. I have other students that are saying no. But God keeps showing up in their lives more than I ever could, beckoning, inviting, wooing, drawing people in somehow, some way. This is our gospel. By sending Jonah, God creates the capacity for the Ninvites to say yes or to say no. And to be honest, from Jonah's standpoint, it looks like a ridiculous task, doesn't it? Why would you send me to some people who've never heard of you before and I have to tell them this message of repentance? The odds of the Ninvites repenting is really small. It's very little. You know, it reminds me of the seminal story of people in my generation, one of many seminal stories, and it's this one. This is a picture of Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. It's a father and son portrait. And this moment in the third film, Return of the Jedi, is a moment where Luke goes to meet his father, who's pure evil, Darth Vader, And Luke believes that there's a little tiny, 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 tiny little bit of good still in his father. 
And he goes to him, risking his own life, because he believes his father might turn his life around. Luke, Jonah, Darth Vader, Nineveh. He goes anyways. And the great epic of this story that's told from 1983, by the way, is when this film was made, is that the son saves the father. Do you want to know the ending? And the father saves the son. Friends, it's this kind of ridiculous hope that we hold on to in our lives. And it's filled with risk. Luke takes his life into his own hands going to face his father. And so we as a church take risks. We take risks to set goals this year of what we want to do as a church. We set risks to take actions. We're taking a risk spending some of our reserves to put the invitation of God's grace out there. They're risks, and they're real ones. They're not fake ones. They're real. And so we have choices to make, too. We have choices to meet our neighbors. We have choices to talk to strangers. We have choices to cultivate relationships. They're all risks. They all involve us putting ourselves out there. Jonah cannot bring himself to sacrificial action for fear that the Ninvites might repent. But God takes sacrificial action because they might repent. Two totally different ways of approaching the problem. So a couple of questions for us to wonder about this week. How have you been reluctant to share love and compassion? And imagine a group of people willing to take the same risk as God. And what kind of characteristics would define that kind of group? Well, uh, as we kind of get to the end of this story now, let's just pause for a moment and talk about how both Jonah and God make space for generous action. Now, Jonah's response to everything that's gone on in Nineveh is to go sit and brood and pout. He's like a toddler. And here we reach the text that Marianne read a moment ago for you. From Jonah's perspective, he's going to enter the city from the west, proclaim his message through the city, exit to the east, leave the city, and he's going to build a little hut, which is what he does. And he builds a little hut because he wants to have a front row seat for God's fire and wrath that come from heaven and will consume Nineveh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's waiting for. The problem is it never happens. Now, the problem that Jonah has to face is his own biography. And here's a little aside for you to know about. Um, in Nineveh, which is a, a city in the Assyrian Empire, it's very, very near a river. And the river happens to be the Tigris. And one of their chief deities that they worshipped in Nineveh in their paganism was the god of the river that they represented this god in Nineveh in the shape of a great fish. So when Jonah shows up and he says, I've been sent to you from God and I was spat up by a giant fish to bring this message to you. Do you see how this plays? The, Ninveh, the Ninvites go, oh, 
Big fish spit you up, you say. They sit up and pay attention. This is one of the reasons why Jonah's message is successful, because the Ninevites think the fish just sent them a prophet. He's waiting for the downfall of Nineveh. He's waiting for correction. He's waiting for judgment. He's waiting for karma. Christians don't believe in karma because we believe in grace. In his case, he cannot afford the space for generous action, to love because it has to be on his terms. There's no sense of sacrifice, no sense of giving. Jonah wants what he wants when he wants it. And the longer he stays in that space, he becomes more and more narrow all the time. So this plant springs up next to him. Most scholars think it's a gourd plant that would spring up quickly, potentially like that, and have large, large leaves on it that would give him shade in the middle of the hot sun sitting out in the middle of the desert. And so the plant springs up, and it says in the text that he rejoiced. Remember chapter 4, verse 1? It's the strongest way in Hebrew you can say, I'm angry. The verse where it says he rejoices over the shade of the plant is the strongest way you can say in Hebrew, he rejoices. It's part of the art of the story in chapter 4. He goes from being as angry as you can get to happy as you get, all in one short little set of verses. He's pleased that this plant has come up to give him shade. He thinks God has given him comfort and a reward for a job well done. And so overnight, God causes a worm to come and it kills the plant. He's filled with anger. So God then asks, Jonah, are you angry about the plant? You see, for Jonah, compassion and justification are good for him and for people like him, but for no one else. I invite us to wonder about this question. If we seek our church to grow just for the sake of its survival, will we not become like Jonah? You see, Christians fall into this trap all the time that they see the world filled with hostile forces, people opposed. And when we do so, our vision narrows, just like Jonah. And so it becomes hard for us to deal with God having compassion on people we don't like, compassion for people we don't get along with, compassion for people we don't see eye to eye with. Our vision cannot get smaller, it has to get bigger. God, on the other hand, instead of brooding and pouting, is hoping and waiting. Not only is God hoping and waiting for Nineveh, but God's also waiting for who else, everyone? Jonah. He's waiting for Jonah. And the book closes with a really important question. It's unfortunate when it's translated out of Hebrew into English that they don't sequence the words correctly. The book literally ends with the question, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? That's how the book ends. It doesn't solve the problem. Does Jonah repent? No. Do we find out what the Ninvites do? No. We, we don't get any answers to some of the questions we're holding throughout the book. This is the key to reading Scripture, especially in what we call the Old Testament. 
in that the books that are there oftentimes are trying to help you ask the right question instead of giving you the answer. And in this case, the right question is, who should God love? That's the question. Should I not have compassion on the people of Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left? This is what God is asking. That word compassion, it's an emotional word in Hebrew. It means to feel. And this is the key to our story, everyone. And that Jonah, Jonah's invited to have some compassion for the people of Nineveh. Do you feel anything for those people, God is asking? Do you, do you even have a glimmer of hope, a little bit of love? Do you have anything for those people in that city who don't know their right hand from their left? Do you have anything at all for them? This is what helps us. And what God is asking us to do, and I think what the Lord is saying in many ways in this text to us, is as you look outside the four walls of the church, do we look at places like Seattle Pacific? Do we look at Queen Anne and Magnolia Ballard? Do we look at North Queen Anne Childcare as containing people that will save our church? Or do we look at them with a heart that breaks for them, with a heart that's heavy for them, which we're just filled with just grief and sadness that there are so many who do not know the message of Jesus Christ. That's different. Then will they show up here and give money and put their butts in a pew? Those are two different things. And this is what Jonah is being pushed to the very edge. Do you feel anything for these people? Do you care at all? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you get the feeling there? The emotion? Sacrificial love places the one to be loved at the center. Jesus said, go make disciples, not make them come to you. So, my friends, we have some important decisions to make. Hard decisions to make. And the decisions we have to make are about our own lives in terms of how we will feel for the people around us. Will we see them with the same compassion and love that God does? Do we look at people with those eyes and as a church, do we look at the communities God called us to serve in that same way? Do we see them with that deep compassion of God? Do we feel for people? This is what the Lord is asking us. And so when we are called to serve or called the so-called volunteer, which I hate that word volunteer, when we're called to do those things, do we see them as obligations to the place or do we see them as opportunities in which we can practice sacrificial love? See, the beauty of sacrificial love is that if I dedicate myself, let's say, to sacrificially loving everyone and fully emptying myself in love and compassion for other people, I have to trust that I'm in a community that is convinced to do the same thing for me. So now instead of me taking care of myself, I'm in a community where I believe that you will take care of me and I will take care of you. This is where Christians are different. This is where we're different. 
This morning, you had a little purple piece of paper in your bulletin. There's stacks of them in the back as well. They look like this. This is our little questionnaire about gifts and interests survey. We want to invite you to find a place maybe where you can contribute to this church's mission of reaching people. After all, part of our vision is to love people, is it not? Yes, it is. So today, Jonah has helped us understand something, and the Lord speaks to us. To love people means what? Sacrificially act in a way that is beneficial for other people. It's the same reason I don't throw my wife's surprise parties anymore. Because that is not an act of love to her. That is an act of frustration to her. So if I want to love my wife the way she wants to be loved, I have to listen to what she needs and what she wants. And it's the same in the world in which we live. So this morning, I want you to take some time as we pray and reflect to maybe fill that little blue, purple piece of paper out. We have a basket here to collect them. We're going to collect them for the next few weeks. Pastor Camille is going to talk to you about that a little bit later on. But we hope you'll want to be a part of what this church is trying to do to love people, connect to Jesus, and serve the world. We exist for no other reason than that. Let's pray. God, we pray that your spirit would continue to surround us and be with us, even as we wrestle with Jonah. Such a hard message for us to hear, a hard message for Christians in the 21st century to listen to. But yet, God, you proclaim it loudly through your prophet that you sent to Nineveh of old. We're thankful that even Jesus spoke of Jonah the prophet, how he himself was sent to the lost house of Israel, and they did not believe in him. That in many ways, the mission to reach new people in new places, in new settings, Jesus tells us, is much like Jonah going to the Ninevites. And God, we know that that journey is going to be hard, it's difficult, it requires sacrifice, but it is for this you died, and this you are resurrected. Mm -hmm.